It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Peter Carl, who's Shadow Schools Minister, so it's a very good time to be talking to him. He's a rising star in the Labour ranks, tipped to be a future Prime Minister. He's led an extraordinary life, and we talk about that in, in emotional detail. This is a fantastic, wide-ranging interview with someone who speaks so well. Before we come on to the details of my brilliant chat with Peter, I have some very good news that I'd hinted at the other week. The political party is returning to the stage permanently and it has a new home in the West End. The shows will now take place at the Duchess Theatre. Obviously, I've been at the other palace for many years, back when it was called the St James Theatre as well. We've now moved the show permanently to the Duchess Theatre. So it's around the corner from the Lion King. It's near Covent Garden, just off the Strand. I'm really excited. And instead of being monthly, it's going fortnightly. So there's loads more opportunities to come. I know so many people would get in touch because when we were at the other palace, it was in quite a small room and the tickets for the whole year would just sell out. And it just meant people just had no chance of getting a ticket. So hopefully this means you have a far better chance. It's every fortnight. It's in the West End in a proper theatre. Isn't this exciting? The first show of this new era is on Monday, the 27th of September, 2021. So in about a month and a half's time, you can get tickets for that on the NIMAX website, nimaxtheatres.com. I've put a link in this blurb in the show notes, or if you go to my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford, you'll find the link on there. But I can't tell you how exciting it is. Obviously, we did those three specials the other month at the Garrick and at the Vaudeville. It was so great to be back. It was so great to be doing this show specifically and doing stand-up and interviewing politicians and just making a real night of it. I really love interviewing politicians over Zoom, but there's no substitute really for that live event. So, oh my word, isn't this exciting? Um, A new home in the West End. (laughs) I never thought I'd have a West End show and I never thought it'd be interviewing politicians would become a West End show, but there we are. This show is now officially a West End show. So Monday, the 27th of September, I'm already lining up guests. They will be announced on the website and on my Twitter feed. And I will, of course, always announce them on here as uh, they are booked. But tickets for shows going right through to July next year. So if you're coming to London, if you don't live here and you're popping down for a weekend or whatever, you might be able to tack this on. It'd be every other Monday from Monday, the 27th of September, 2021. Um, and it will be the same format, stand up, a break and an interview with a big political guest. So that is something to look forward to. And I'll be announcing who those guests are as the weeks go by. Uh, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly if you've seen a politician in an unusual place or had an embarrassing or even mundane encounter with them. Sean Dunderdale has been in touch from Radio Lincolnshire. And uh, he said, I'd been at a, in London at an awards do with my then boss, who was slightly worse for wear, as we dashed back to King's Cross to catch the last train home. The train was just departing, so he jumped into first class and started walking through to the other carriages. In front of me, I saw my boss suddenly lunge forward as if seeing an old friend. I heard her say, John, how are you? And went in for a kiss on the cheek. 
I quickly grabbed her arm and said, that's not your friend. It's John Prescott, the deputy prime minister, and pulled her out of the carriage. Oh, man. You know what? I think there must be so many of those. Because politicians are authority figures, I think sometimes people react like they've seen their mum or their dad or something. That's a great story from Sean. So if you have a similar encounter, email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. On to today's guest, Peter Carl. And firstly, I've had so many messages about last week's guest, Pat McFadden. It was a treat and a pleasure. And I'm so glad that you all enjoyed it as much as I did. This is in that league. Peter Kyle is someone who you will know, is uh, Shadow Schools Minister, is on the rise and is highly impressive. And he's had to overcome a number of hurdles in his life, some you may be aware of, some you may not be. And he talks about politics and life and just the lessons he's learned in such an inspirational way. And he is clearly someone going places. So enjoy uh, an hour and a half or so um, with a rising star, Peter Kahn. Peter, this is a total coincidence of timing because... You agreed to come on the show a few weeks ago and we agreed this date. And it didn't occur to me that we'd be bang in the middle of A-level and GCSE results time. And what this week's A-level results have shown is that the gap between state and private schools when it comes to A-level results has widened. You've been on the TV and on the radio a lot this week um, reacting to that. Um, so firstly, thank you for uh, the wonderful coincidental timing. But I guess secondly, why is the gap between state and private schools continuing to widen at A-level? Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I've been really looking forward to it. And I didn't realise, actually, because the date changed a few times, I, I didn't realise it would come bang smack in the middle of this day. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss out on, on the chance to speak to you uh, for anything. So uh, the, the, the important thing to say about the gap between attainment in private schools and state schools is it's not inevitable. Uh, and the fact that it's got bigger in this particular year of all years is completely not inevitable. And I'm calling it the Williamson effect. Because I think now we always know that Gavin Williamson is the, the most incompetent out of the cabinet of incompetence. But now we actually have a metric to measure it by. So the, get, the widening gap specifically between the state and private education this year is how we measure in numerical terms how useless Gavin Williamson is and how much in numerical terms he has failed state students and the people who work in state schools. Because if state schools had the right investment, if they had the right support, if they had the right guidance, there is no question in my mind that actually the attainment uh, gap, that the, attain the attainment uh, increases that we've seen because of teacher assessed grades would have been actually paralleled in the state schools and the private, private school sector. Are there perhaps any other explanations for that gap? I mean, obviously, there's a reason why people who can afford to some of them send their kids to private schools because you tend to get better results. And also there's, you know, you're moving in circles that might secure your future more than perhaps going to uh, a state school. I mean, is there any suggestion at all that private schools might give their students better results than state schools might? I can't allow myself to believe that. I, you know, I, don't, I just don't think people go into teaching in order to fix grades for kids, you know, not, not anywhere where they would teach in any sector, any part of the education system, whether it's state or private. I, I just don't believe that. Uh, you know, I think what we see happening, uh, which is pre-COVID, but been turbocharged during COVID simply because of the shambles that Gavin Williamson has left in, in his wake, uh, is that there's a number of factors. Clearly, 
investment is one of them. I mean, private sector schools, you know, are spending about double per uh, pupil than state schools. That that is, you know, that, that is a factor. There's no question about it. Uh, private schools also have the ability to tailor education much, to a much greater extent to the individual needs of, uh, of students. Uh, private schools also uh, can, can maintain a very specific ethos for the way they teach, which means that parents gravitate towards that school from quite a wide geographical area in order to match the way the school teaches to the learning abilities and, and needs of the student. But there's another thing here. All of these things I've just mentioned, incidentally, can be replicated in the state sector. Nothing of it can't. But there's this other element as well, which I've been talking about this time, which isn't talked about very much. And you'll notice a Sunday Times article a couple of weeks ago where they found out that private schools were using the data they already had on uh, their own kids. And they were ringing up universities and they were going to bat for their, for their individual students. They knew that some grades weren't reflecting the ability of some of their students. And they were picking up the phone, ringing the university and saying, don't forget Tracy, don't forget Charlie. You know, these are kids who have got great skills. Don't overlook them when you get all the numbers out. Now, some state school kids will be having the same because their parents will be doing it. But I've been saying very, very loudly in the last few days that if you are a teacher or a senior leader in a, in a state school, and you know that there are some kids who have been defeated by COVID but have the ability and aptitude to really thrive in an academic environment at university, pick the phone up. If they don't have parents who are picking the phone up, pick the phone up for them. Go to war for your kids because somebody's got to. And that's what I want the state school sector to be doing. You know, finding those, the system is a good system. It works for the majority, but there will be a small minority who don't have uh, parents will be picking up the phone, not blaming the parents, because I grew up in a family that, that whose parents didn't go to university. So it's not, it's not, you know, it wasn't in their nature. They didn't yeah, know what to be do. So yeah, exactly. That you can actually do this sort of stuff. Um, but in those specific cases where, where, where people need to know a specific situation with a young person, then let's just go to battle for them because nobody else is. So all of those sorts of things combine, but in a period like COVID, and with a Secretary of State like Gavin Williamson, it's kind of like the perfect storm. And I guess one of the things that state schools can learn from private schools is what private schools have is that their pupils aren't just pupils, they are customers. And therefore, uh, the product, effectively, the result is, I guess, either the exam result or a university place. And what private schools need to be able to say to their customers, to the parents is, if you come here, your child is more likely to go to not just any university, but perhaps Oxford or Cambridge or Red Brick or, you know, the, the, the university of their choice. That is an extra incentive for that institution to pick up the phone because effectively you're, you're a salesperson in, in, in that aspect. Now, to some people on the left, that might feel grubby. But if the end result is you get a child into a university that they probably should have gone to, then that's something perhaps that the state sector can can learn from, dare we say, market forces. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I spoke to a teacher in a private school, a, a, a leader in a private school school, and she said to me that if her grades dropped or plateaued any year, she'd be gone. Uh, she'd be gone, you know, within a day of the results coming out. You know, so there is, you know, I think that is market forces gone gone mad, and that we do need to learn from. The private sector because sometimes they they are braver than the state sector 
uh, in the way that they do education. You know, there's a lot of, you know, they, they, they actually do a lot of teaching in this sort of co-curricular environment, which I'm trying to learn a lot more about at the moment, where basically, you know, you finish the core curriculum for the day and then suddenly you'll be out, outside. You'll be doing a lot of activity-based uh, work, which doesn't feel like learning at all, but you're learning social, communicative, uh, quite often problem-solving through sports, through drama, through activities, feels really great and energetic for kids, but they're not so aware that actually this is real learning as well. And actually, very important learning because uh, learning to do uh, communications, teamwork, all these sorts of things really stand you in good stead when you when you go into the world of work. And that's the kind of stuff that's, that is increasingly uh, the preserve of the private sector schooling but not so much in state school and that's what we've got to correct you know when I, I I've, I've been involved in setting up a couple of schools uh, both in areas of, of quite extreme deprivation and both were turnaround schools and we used sport you know in a really profound way to try and uh, break the the sort of business as usual that, that, that kids had towards schooling and they had no idea that we were teaching them entrepreneurial skills through sporting you know, you'd have a fantastic uh, session uh, out on the pitch. And then there'd be a five-minute moment where they'd say, why did that team win and that team lo- lose? Let's have a talk. What were they doing that you, you weren't doing? They're dirty cheats. Uh... <laughs> it was a penalty. Yeah, why I've did you give say, it? What? I've got, I've got to say, Matt, I've been really nervous about doing having this conversation with you because I do listen to your podcast and there is a theme that goes through all of them and it's sport. Yeah. And of course, I am so not sporty. Even last week, you were talking to Pat McFadden about Celtic and things. And I was thinking, oh my God, I, I, your Twitter feed full, full of sport. You know, you remember a kick, a goal from 25 years ago. So I'm thinking, how on earth am I going to survive a whole conversation with you? And actually, if you come to me with sport, I've got to say, if, 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 if there isn't a dating app on earth that would put you and me in the same room. Well, there, so, might be. there was a Blairite one in my... so, so so how are we going to get through this conversation I, I don't know but anyway well I brought sport uh, into it having said that well you can, I mean looking at the pair of us I might watch more sport you look like you play more than I do you're in very fine physical shape so you've got more I've authority always, on that always, I learned to love exercise but I had to learn to love it and uh, and what I've what I know about myself is I just don't enjoy team sports but I love doing stuff I love I love being active and physical uh but I like to do it on my own terms in my own way so I love the gym and sort of lots of exercise around that sort of thing and also I love doing doing sport you know around other people actually a lot of gym's great because you can speak to people and be communicative but you're not kind of reliant on each other and does that reflect your role in the shadow cabinet no it's completely the opposite <laughs> but I've always been I've always been my, my professional life my approach to professional life has always been very very different to my personal life in my personal life, I just don't have a competitive bone in my body. I mean, I just don't. Nothing. You know, so if I'm, if I'm doing, this is why I'm so useful to team sports, because I just, you know, if somebody else scores, I'd be like, God, that was good of them, wouldn't it? You know, when, when everyone else is sort of putting their hair out. Uh, but but in, in professional life, you know, I, when I get, the, when I get the, the bit between the teeth, there is no stopping me. I mean, there is literally no stopping me. I'm just very, very driven there but in private life you know I, I just I, I enjoy the process of doing things much more than the outcome why is that do you think I've got absolutely no idea I mean absolutely but I've always known it about myself always known it about myself when, when I was at school and I was forced to play rugby and stuff like that you know I would just dread the ball being thrown in my direction because I just knew if I had it I'd have 10 people shouting at me 
<laughs> so, I guess that makes sense. I'm over here, over there. No, 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 no. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, all right. So, but because but, I was always long and gangly, you know, I could always run. I could always just really leg it. Yeah. <laughs> and that was that was basically the thing I could do. But the thing I sort of did well at school, sport wise, was the high jump for obvious reasons, probably. So yes, I, of I, I, I've been the same shape since I was about fourteen. So, do you prefer to watch the Olympics then? I. I did watch the Euros. I I didn't watch all of all of the games. But I watched bits of uh, all of the games, and oh, I much preferred the Olympics because the Olympics is there's something for everyone in the Olympics yeah. because you know there is a sport which is involved figuring out what the sport is. So sometimes you're sitting there and you're just thinking, you know, how, what, you know, what what what's going on? <laughs> and there's some of the some of the cycling ones in the velodrome where you've got when it's relay and you've got both teams going round simultaneously and then they're handing over. I mean, it, it is complete carnage and you've got no idea what's happening, but you know, it's only when you see it in slow motion. Um, so yeah, I, I did enjoy the Olympics, but I found it much more emotional than I thought I would. The, I found myself a couple of times completely tearing up and at the same time laughing at myself for being so sentimental. So I was sort of like laughing and crying at the same time. Yeah. And the things that the things that would make me emotional was it was literally when the the face of athletes when they won, and then the face of athletes when they lost. Yeah. And then my God, if anybody was injured, I was in bits, you know, because this is this is these are people who have been working for you know most of their childhood and all of their adulthood for that one, two, or three minute moment, and to see everything just sort of come together at that at that at that point is just incredible. Um, you know, and some of the, the skill that, the, with which they're doing stuff is remarkable. It is. And, and as you said about um, using it to educate people, I guess people watch it and most people don't know what it's like to run the 100 metres in the Olympics, but they'll think of perhaps challenges they've had to overcome, a job interview or, or an exam or something. People will think, well, that was my 100 metres. They might not even think about it as explicitly as that, but there's a sense that cometh the hour, you know, that at some point in your life you were tested. And obviously in your life, um, you ended up, your relationship with education, I mean, you mentioned Gavin Williamson. You two seem to have a very different approach to talking about um, your, your educational attainment <laughs> at a young age. He can't remember his um, A-level or GCSE results, um, but you can, and, and perhaps because you, you sat your A-levels again at the age of 25. I mean, it's remarkable that you're so um, relaxed talking about it, and yet he seems so coy about his... Um, education i don't know why he's coy about it because as a politician there's a story in whatever grade he got i mean if he did get great grades well obviously i don't think he would forget that at the moment of uh being asked in an interview but if he got bad grades then there is a story there to be told that actually would be quite humanizing for somebody who is very very difficult for most people to look at and actually have any empathy with so uh, it just surprises me that he doesn't just tell the story of his education. Uh, and I think politicians do need to tell the story of who they are and why they are as they are. Um, it, because I think it, it, it shows what gets you out of bed in the morning and what gives you the drive. You know, for me, uh, it's a story I, I've always talked privately about because obviously my friends knew me. A lot of my friends knew me at that particular moment in time. So you know, I left school with no usable qualifications at all. I mean, I did get some, but they were all, 
you know, the, the lowest grade you could get or fails. And, you know, I just, you know, I had, I just had a, a difficult time at school, but I never want to people to think that that is linked to happiness because I was a very, very happy child. Uh, and I've always been happy throughout my whole life, uh, despite some of the challenges that have been thrown in my path. But, you know, I did leave without usable qualifications. I threw myself into a very energetic set of jobs. So, you know, I, I ended up at the body shop. I became an aid worker. You know, and, and doing aid work is very instinctive. Uh, it's all hands on deck very, very often. And it, it just played to all of my strengths at that moment in time. But then I started to see what was happening in the aid world, which is only being revealed in recent years. And I didn't see the, the criminal activity, but I certainly saw a culture that wasn't really fit for purpose and was harboring some pretty, you know, unpleasant people. And I had a conversation with Anita Roddick, who was my kind of, who, was men, who mentored me a lot. Uh, and I said to her, I'm really worried about all this. And also I haven't got any qualifications. How can I complain about all these people? If I'm gonna have a, a career, a life in development, you know, how can I complain about some of these people being put into jobs where they're not qualified for, they don't have the experience for, and they're managing enormous amounts of responsibility for people's lives? And she then sort of thought about this for a while. And she came back to me and said, I think it's time you went to university. You've been doing all this stuff with your heart. It's time you started to, to reflect and use your head a bit more. So I applied to university and got rejected. And I went to visit my friend who was at university, my best mate, and stayed with him. And I thought, God, you know, I could do this. I, I could do this. No, no one in my family had done it. I'd never had the word university really mentioned. My, and that's not a criticism of my parents because neither of them went to university. Um, so the first person who ever mentioned the word university to me was Anita Roddick. And so I then needed the fastest way to really do it because I wasn't going to spend years and years and years doing it and getting the qualifications I needed. The university told me what they wanted. So I went to speak to one of my former uh, teachers and uh, Mr. Kingston, and he was a lovely guy. He called me up a couple of days later and said, you know, the access courses were all very, very expensive back then. And he just said, we all feel a bit guilty about how you left school. Uh, I was 25 at the time. Um, and Not when you left. When I, when, I, when, I, no, when I spoke to him, sorry. I was 25. <laughs> I was 25. No wonder he felt guilty. I was, I was 25 when I left again. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he said, you know, we all feel a bit bad about, you know, you and what, what sort of happened to you. So how about this? How about you come back and sit in on the classes? We won't put you on the roll, but you can sit in on the classes and then we will enroll, we will sneak you through on the exams, basically. We'll add you to our exam register at the end of the year. And you can wow. do the A-level in, in, a, in, a, in a one year. You'll do both years in, in a year. So I did it. You know, I went in, I sat in a classroom with 16, 17-year-olds, uh, walked in, in that potentially very humiliating moment, but sat in the middle of the classroom. I thought, I'm going to own this. I'm not going to slink up. <laughs> they all thought I was the supply teacher when I walked in. But they were, they were so good to me. They all were brilliant to me. And the teachers were absolutely just amazing. I got what I needed and applied to the university again and they rejected me again. Yeah. So, um, this. yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, normally when journalists, or, or the only time I've told this story, when the journalist tells this story, it, it goes on too long. So they, they sort of cut, they do, do the middle bit. But the truth is that Anita Roddick rang up Sussex University and said, I have an honorary doctorate 
from your university and I'm going to return it unless you have Peter Kyle as a student. Amazing. So, yeah. So, and so wow. miraculously, the next day I got accepted as a student. And when I started now, now, six years later, I had come out with a degree and a doctorate. Wow. So, it, so it's not subjective for me to say that it was ridiculous that I struggled so much to get an education. Because I think if you can come out with a doctorate at the end, I think it's, it's an objective fact that the system was crazy to, tr- to make it so difficult for me to, to get in. Now, what, what other kid? I don't know, incidentally, why I um, did all that. Uh, I, I don't know what precisely was driving me, but part of it is I've always been quite anti-authoritarian. And the fact that so many adults were just saying no, 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 constantly was just driving me crazy. So... That was clearly, I think, a, a bit of it. But uh, objectively, it was insane that the education system was just slammed in my face. Now, when I look at a group of people now, whenever I look at a group of people, I will always think how many, how many doctorates don't exist because they took no for an answer. How many yeah. people didn't set businesses up? How many people didn't set charities up? How many, you know, how many jobs haven't been created because the people in front of me weren't able to fulfill their potential and explore their potential or even find out what their potential was because so many people were saying no to them at those crucial moments in time. And that, without question, is what brought me into politics uh, and led me towards politics. You know what? I mean, there's so many things we need to talk about, but that's such a good point that I think people just assume that there's a kind of set of rules out there. And if you haven't got this, you can't do that. And uh, if the answer's no, then that's just it. And actually... Sometimes if you pick up the phone and say, look, I don't have that specific qualification, but I, I, I do have this and I've worked in that field. Actually, you can get a different answer. Like, it just doesn't, maybe it's a British thing, maybe it's a class thing, maybe it just doesn't occur to people. But obviously you prove that you don't just have to accept. I mean, so many things I want to ask about. Firstly, well, why do you think you were so catastrophically failed by your school first time round? Well, this was the 80s. Uh, the West Sussex, where I went to school uh, in a comprehensive school in Bognor Regis, was the last, I think, uh, authority area to recognise dyslexia and start putting support in for dyslexics. You know, I was, when I submitted my very first piece of work at Sussex University, the tutor just called me in and said, go and get a dyslexia test. Here's a phone number for you. And I did, and they came back and, you know, I'm very severely dyslexic. And it's weird, I didn't even know it myself. Uh, really. Uh, so, so how did you not know then? I mean, how, did, how would you get on reading? If Well, why would you know? I mean, like, you know, you can only ever look at the world through your own eyes. Yeah. I can't, I can't sit there and see what, see how other people look at a piece of paper and what they see. So I've only ever seen the same thing. So when you're young and, you know, you never knew what dyslexia was and teachers weren't trained to spot it or identify it or channel it or whatever, then you know, it, it, you just sort of put one foot in front of the other and do the best you can. But it just became quite obvious that I just couldn't, you know, there were certain things I just couldn't struggle with. And there was, a, there was a couple of teachers that said to me, you know, we just can't figure you out, you know, because I think most people who, who were, were struggling, because I could communicate very, very well. Yeah. And also, you know, you know, I, I had lots of friends. I was quite liked and likable, you know. It wasn't like <laughs> I was, you know, I, I wasn't a kid who had behavioural problems, which was driving the lack of performance. And also verbally when I was communicating you know I I wasn't having the kind of challenges that would normally be barriers towards most people learning so there was a lot of head scratching I was sent to a a doctor to see if my eyes were 
screwed up and he gave me this weird thing I had to put on my head once a day and do these weird things with. So there was, there was stuff like that. What but weird thing that you never, had to put on your head? They, they, I had to put this thing on my head that was, it's quite hard to describe, but it was like a, a strap around the head and then there was this wooden thing with two uh, handles and you had to extend the handle and focus on one of the handles and it was there to sort of make your eyes focus. Like and a they trombone said that I had, mechanism? Yes, yeah, basically, yeah, similar to a trombone. I had to do that in the morning and in the evening. Uh, and they had said that I had uh, uh, one of my eye wobbled and if I sorted that out, then that would sort everything else out with it or whatever. But it was... That sounds like uh, pre-Victorian medicine. That's like <laughs> olden times. Did you go to Bognor in the 80s? I haven't been to Bog- Bognor in the noughties. Or the, or, or, I don't think I've ever been to Bognor. No. I mean, it's just incredible that someone who is clearly so bright was so catastrophically failed that it's not that you're lacking intelligence. It's that the system was unable to allow you to express it, which, I mean, that's what education is for. Yeah, but if you, if you go rewind back to the beginning of this conversation, this is why, you know, I feel so strongly that state schools, when they see kids who have the aptitude, then they should be going to battle for them. Now, mm-hmm. most of the time they do. I know teachers will be listening to this and, you know, that some of them will be saying, well, I do do that. Uh, you know, my message to them is great. I'm on your side. And if someone's not listening to you, someone isn't picking up the phone, then let's find a way to break that down. Uh, so, uh, you know, and this is the point about having people with who have overcome struggles or barriers in their life in politics, because I think that's where a lot of the really interesting grit comes from. Uh, you know, I want us to be not to leave those kids behind. So a lot of the a lot of the difference, if you're going back to that earlier conversation between state education and private uh, education outcomes is simply because in the private sector, they don't really leave people behind. Now, a lot of them will have gateways to getting into those schools in the first place, and some of those will be academic based. You know, so I'm not, I'm not you know, being uh, you know, rose tinted about, <laughs> about that at all. Uh, but, but I hope you can see from what I'm saying is that I think that our state education is being held back at the moment being held back by Gavin Williamson, by, by Richie Sunak and Boris Johnson's lack of willingness to invest in, in the right way, but also the right people at the, at the department to give the right steer, the right support, the right metrics for, for, for moving the education system forward. But part of that is finding those kids who have the aptitude, finding out how to unlock it, but also at those key, key moments, go to battle for them. You know, be the assertive parent that they kind of need. Uh, we need a system that does that and looks out for them. And, and of course, I'm, I am living proof of that uh, and what can happen when, 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 it, you know, when, when you get that right. But ultimately, it took Anita Roddick to, to be there at that key moment. Unfortunately, you know, she's not with us anymore. And even if she was with us, she wouldn't be able to do it for, for the hundreds or sadly thousands of kids, actually, who come out of the, the, the education system not quite having direct the direction or being pointed in the direction in which they're likely to fill their potential as they grow and uh, age and mature and so forth. I don't want to overly focus on you've been at school at 25, but it's such a funny image of <laughs> you sat in yeah. the middle of a classroom. So did the teacher, when the teacher eventually comes in, say, now this is Peter. Peter used to go to this school and he's... Do- was it ever addressed? Was it explained? Luckily, his name was Larry Kingston. And he was a very larger than life character. And when he was in the room, he was the character in the room. He was one of those teachers. And so 
nobody would ever mess with him. And he was great fun, uh, had a very great, uh, big sense of humor. So I arrived early. So I was in the classroom before he was on the first day. So they literally thought I was the supply teacher. So yeah. they all sort of looked at me and you could see some of them instantly sort of going, right, you know, how do we wind him up? <laughs> uh, and I, so I just said, I'm not here to teach. I'm here to learn. And I just went and sat in the middle, literally like the second row back in the middle of the thing. And it was, it was in the same comprehensive school that I'd left earlier. I left in 1989 when I was 18. And the school was, there was a lot of strikes. It was a lot of unrest at the time. There was no books, virtually no books in the library. The school was very run down. It was a proper Grange Hill type experience. And then when I went back in 1995, to go back and, and do it again. The classroom I'd been taught in mostly uh, as, as a kid was closed because water was falling straight through the, the roof when it rained. So the classroom was closed and it was a porter cabin outside. So a water feature, sounds like a private yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that was, people forget just how bad the, the education system had got uh, under the, the, in the latter part of the Tories. I mean, it had been so run down. So you know, Mr. Kingston came into the room and saw me and then uh, he didn't really make a thing of it. He just said, welcome, Peter, new, new student. He'll be with us from time to time uh, and uh, let's get on with the lesson. And I've, I didn't act any different. I went on field trips with the kids. Uh, I, I did everything. Smokes behind the bike sheds. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do that. No. Give him a bit of weed. Mind you, I've got to say, I didn't do that the first time around, though. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Were you, were you, did you basically revert to being how you'd been before? I don't know. I was, I was also working at the time. So I would, I would drive back to the body shop's head office and then work there in the evening to catch the side and lose, you know, lose out on any work there and everything. So it was all, it was a very interesting point in my life. School dinners was, was, as well? Was, did you have school dinners with no, them? No, 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 no. I don't think I ate them actually first time around either. So there was no change there. <laughs> What would you do at break time? Slang. You just kind of... Oh, so no, I would come and go. So I wouldn't... So, so look, if there was two lessons that, was, that we had a break in the middle, I would stay. But I mean, I would... I, had, I, was, I would go into work very, very early in work from like seven in the morning or six in the morning. And then I would go to school and then I'd go back to work again. So I was still working at the body shop. Anita Roddick and the people I was working with were, were fantastic for me. I mean, it was so unusual. There was lots of people who were... Who, who created the space for me to do this. But lots of unconventional people. Uh, Anita Roddick was very, very unconventional. So the fact that, that these people, these unconventional people, and, they, and Mr. Kingston himself, quite un unconventional, all these unconventional people allowed me to do something quite unconventional and come out the other end. I haven't had an academic um, award in my life, but at the end of that year, the school said to me, would I come to the award ceremony for all the kids? So I went and right at the very, very end, they said, There's the last award is for Peter Kyle. Could he come up, please? And it was an award for persistence. <laughs> Are you crying now? Oh, God. That's so <laughs> am I like, oh, am I like, am I like uh, the, the Olympians who have just injured <laughs> themselves? <laughs> Shot with the Union Jack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's no sentimentality so in any of this. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you can tell these stories going back. And, you know, you could start the sort of Labour Party, party political broadcast, Hovis advert music when I'm telling it. Putting the Hovis. Hovis. Yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well done. <laughs> uh, but there was no sentimentality at the time. I was so driven 
you know, I was so driven. I always had been, but it was you know, that the purpose right then was I had, I, I knew that I'd gone through the whole of, of education and I hadn't learned how to learn. And then when I was around Anita Roddick, this, this global, big, unconventional character who uh, I was learning so much around her. And she then said, well, you know, what I'm learning is basically instinctive. I need to do the, the, the brain stuff as well. Uh, and, and when I got to university, I think, I think it's fair to say that Anita Roddick was the first individual that saw something in me I didn't know I had. And she, she mentored it and shaped it. When I got to university, that was the first time an institution had unlocked something in me I didn't know I had. I mean, I, I was, I loved university. I, I wasn't an easy student. I mean, I don't think I was an easy student to be teaching in what those very, mean? very early days. Disruptive. Uh, I, there was, there was a couple, I, I was quite gobby. There was, <laughs> it, when I was an under, I feel a bit embarrassed about it now, but I heckled some, one of my teachers in lesser, lecturers in, in a lecture. Uh, Why? What about? Again, I learned a very big lesson from from this. Well, he was doing this. I mean, obviously, he was doing when you look back what he should have been doing. I mean, he was teaching. Uh, I, I was I, I was studying human geography with international development and environmental studies, and he was teaching basically the economic the economic side of it. And he was doing a lot of the kind of Washington Consensus type stuff. Now, you know, when you look back. He was he was doing what he needed to do and teach us teaching us about different types of orthodoxy. But of course, me being me right back then at that moment in time, uh, I thought, my God, he's he's teaching this as as the sort of you know as the orthodoxy that we're yeah. we're supposed to sort of take as read. And I so I just got a bit gobby about it. And actually, I did heckle him in uh, in the lesson when I when I submitted an essay, uh, it got marked very very low. Uh, and then I put an appeal in and it got returned as a first. And so you can imagine, you know, the, my relationship with this particular tutor. And then later on. God. Um, later Do you remember on, what you heckled, by the way? Do you remember what you shouted? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean, I, it wasn't like. You this know, is neoliberalism, on, man. <laughs> no, yeah, it was Smash the state, like, dude. <laughs> no, knowing me, it would have been like a counterfact or something. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been very good with slogans. Um, so, yeah, but later, later on, there was a crucial moment where they had to decide whether to accept me as a, as a PhD student. And when I walked into the office, the, re- the, the head of research, the head of the research department had changed. And suddenly this guy, two years earlier that I'd heckled and had this thing with, he would been made the head of the head of the research department. And he had to make the choice as to whether to have me as a, as a doctoral student. And so I sat in his office and I just thought, I saw it was him sat in the office and thought, you know, I'm done for. And then he just sort of turned, didn't mention anything about the past, just had a conversation and just said, uh, I'm sticking my neck out here. Uh, I'm having you as a student, you know, you are going to get through this. He said, you are not going to fail. You're going to get through this without any, any disruption, any fuss, any this, any that. You're going to knuckle down and you're going to smash this doctorate and you're going to come out the other end. Is that clear? And I was like, yes, yes. Oh. And I did. <laughs> so again, you know, you learn a lot at university. Not all of it is just academic, you know, oh, and, so uh, and I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that I had these, these people who, uh, who, who gave me the benefit of the doubt at some pretty key moments. Do you think, had you not been dyslexic and it not been effectively missed or undiagnosed, 
that you wouldn't have this drive that you have. That that's something that actually formed a crucial part of your character. It's quite hard to say those sorts of things. There are, I've had to battle a few different things. I mean, don't, don't forget also I'm gay and this was the 80s in education in a comprehensive school in Bognor Regis with section 28 on statute. So, which came in right towards the end of my uh, time at school, but also had been talked about for years running up to it. It, wasn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, so I was sitting in a classroom where I wasn't learning anything. And then also there was, there was one moment and I, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a repressed gay in the, in the, I didn't know what I was, you know, I didn't know another gay person, but I knew, I knew that, you know, there, there was something there that I wouldn't really allow myself to think about very much. And then I remember a teacher standing up and uh, saying, we're about to read a, a text that has a same sex relationship in it. This is not normal. And the government insists that we point out to students, this isn't normal. Now, oh I just remember God. myself, I remember myself blushing, uh, but I don't know why I was blushing, you know? So I just sort of knew that it was, you know, so all of this was going on as well. So there was lots of, there was lots of different aspects as to why that particular system at that particular moment in time wasn't on my side. Um, but I think when it comes to drive, uh, I think I owe as much to my dad for that as anyone else. My dad left school at 14, uh, grew up in Liverpool in, I think, what would be fair to say, abject poverty. And left school at 14, became an apprentice stonemason to his dad, who was a stonemason. His granddad was also an apprentice stonemason to his dad. So imagine what my, my granddad was like, you know, wow. he had these two, you know, he was basically, you know, he, he, there was a whole generation of stonemasons going down that line, either, either miners or uh, stonemasons and but that guy was doing the best he possibly could for his family by bringing them on as apprentices so my dad left school at 14 became an apprentice stonemason to his dad working with his granddad as well up in Liverpool did that for a couple of years and then did the first thing he could do to really escape and he joined the navy so dad joined the navy was in the navy for 10 years came out was a door-to-door -door salesperson for Pilkington Glass up in Liverpool he then uh, went to night school at the same time uh, you know, so so my dad's oh, journey really and mine, even though, no even though with different, even though with different um, uh, starting points and very different, you know, geographical and and, and places in time, uh, you know, we we've, there's something there. Now my dad ended up moving south, working for a salesperson, then he ended up working his way up the company and owning the company. Uh, so I, you know, I've never known uh, hard work, graft, and, and drive like my dad's. Uh, so, you know, and I, I think so, so that is clearly something that, that I have inherited or learned from, from my dad. So I always say to people that you know, the best way to sort of understand me, because people would look at me and just say, MP, doctorate, Southern with a Southern accent, yeah. uh, you know, make all these assumptions like we do about people, particularly in the Labour Party, where we fetishize accents so, so much that uh, I think the best way to really understand me is I, I inherited my dad's working class work ethic you know because he really graft, grafted uh, and, and I think I do too I certainly think I do and but I also have a middle class sensibility and a middle class life based on what he achieved so I have both of these things uh, you know in me uh, and I've learned to overcome obstacles and there's no there's no question that dyslexia and quite severe dyslexia has presented one of the biggest obstacles I've had to do but We've already talked, we've talked about the systems I've had to overcome, 
you know, dyslexia meant that I'm, I've been battling my brain a lot as well. So I've been battling something that's sort of inside. Uh, so, you know, I think I'm used to overcoming obstacles. I, I'm not daunted by any of them. I, there's never been a no that's been presented to me that I've been intimidated by. So what does this mean to my political life? Well, I don't know, but I don't think it's an accident that I stood in a Tory seat uh, and wasn't intimidated by the fact and, and wasn't daunted. And whereas everyone around me thought it was impossible to win, that uh, I didn't think it was impossible to win at all. I mean, I just gen genuinely, it wasn't a naive uh, sentiment. Obviously it wasn't because we won. So, you know, I think my optimism was... Well, it wasn't optimism, actually. My, my, my sense that actually it wasn't inevitable that we would lose was quite well-placed. So I think that's the kind of um, results that, that come from overcoming so many different obstacles. You mentioned Anita Roddick a few times. It must have been an incredible person to work for, an icon. Um, there's a great photo of the two of you that I'd seen before and was recently republished in the Sunday Times where... And I mean this in the kindest possible way, Peter. You are probably the best-looking male MP. Stop um, it. Oh, God. Photogenic, well-dressed. Oh, no, 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 well no, 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 no. But I have this to say that. People, this is where people on the podcast press that button that board winds 15 seconds. <laughs> well, I'll talk for more than 15 seconds about how good-looking you are. But you are photogenic. I mean, I remember actually the first time I clapped eyes on you was um, at Tony Blair's resignation speech at Trimden Labour Club. I remember seeing yeah. you then. I said to, I think it was Will Sherlock or someone. I said, "Who's that?" I said, it's Peter Carr. I was like, "Bloody oh, God. oh my this is god!" So embarrassing. But I'm now going to undercut that because on that photo of you and Anita Roddick, you've got this long hair. You've got a kind of beard. I mean, as well as pushing you to university, did you did she ever say to you, Peter, cut your hair and shave that thing off? So that long hair came from. Uh, you, you stumbled on a story that, that you didn't know existed. But when I first started working at the body shop, uh, I was, I got that job incidentally because they were getting 400 applications for every job because that was, a, this was 1989 and everything was going through the roof of the body shop. It's yeah. becoming this global thing. Everyone wanted to work there. And their head office was fairly close to where I lived. So I applied for all these jobs, didn't get them, went to a recruitment agency and said, just get me into the body shop. And they couldn't. So I just turned up at the reception as an 18 year old and sat in reception all morning and then in the afternoon uh early afternoon somebody finally came out put me out of my misery and had a chat with me when i got home they left a message on the answer phone and said you've got this job in the accounts department inputting invoices into the computer system on a desk that's shared by you know three desks joined together in a big open plan office so uh, i said i'll take it and of course i was hopeless at the job i was useless at the job because it was it, i didn't know it of course now but it played to all of my all of my weaknesses, you know, looking at invoices, numbers, impenetrable things, getting it into a computer system. And we're not talking, you know, 2020s computers. We're talking about, you know, early 1990s computer systems, these weird things, um, very, very unintuitive. And um, anyway, one of the very big bosses of the body shop walked past. It was very informal. Everyone got to know each other. And he walked past and he went, Pete, get your hair cut. And walked off. And I thought, did he just say that to me? I don't believe he just said that to me. So I'm sitting there stewing at this thing. I get, again, being the 90s, I get this calendar that's pinned to my desk and I mark the date that he said this and I never got my hair cut for a year from that date. <laughs> so after about three months, they just stopped mentioning it. 
so uh but after a year i mean like we've all just been through lockdown imagine like not getting your hair cut from the first lockdown to the to after the third one i mean my parents were going bonkers my friends thought i just lost my mind and uh, everyone in the company was just you know but it was a very anti-authoritarian company you know anita roddick was anti-authoritarian so they kind of respected that sort of thing um, nobody wore a suit there so one day i actually for one, one period, I wore a shirt and tie get going there because it was just different because <laughs> everyone was wearing, you know, it's, it's, it's the only time uh, I borrowed one of my dad's ties. Uh, but when you did eventually cut it and have it as you have it now, which is very stylish, really suits you, you must have thought maybe that guy was right. I should have listened to that guy in the accounts. No, I wish, no, actually, I regret when I, I actually, regret's the wrong word. I don't have any regrets in my life, but I wish looking back that uh, I'd done more of my hair. I'd, I would love to have had a mohawk. I see all these young youngsters with all these great, you know, these, these amazing hair. And I'm not one of the big sort of like 80s ones, yeah. just one of those little ones down there. Like a Beckham I never dy- I've never dyed my hair or coloured my hair or anything. I wish I'd done all of that sort of stuff back then. You could still do it. No. Matt, Why not? I can't. No. Change the I system, can't. dude. No, no, no. I, I'm st- I still have that anti-authoritarian streak. But now you said that, I can't. Of course, yeah. All right, don't do it then. Don't do it. Keep it- <laughs> yeah. No, now, now there's another factor in my life, and that's trying to uphold the dignity of a community <laughs> as their representative. There is that as well. Um, I should say as well, what, what, we're talking to each other on Zoom. We can see each other. Obviously, this is an audio medium. But it's a pleasure to be able to see your backdrop, which I've seen on the news a few times. And people, people who follow you will know. I mean, at first when I saw, you've got such a, a great taste when it comes to interior design. At first I thought, He's coming live from some sort of hotel divan or Oliver Bonas <laughs> inspired. The interior design in your flat is fantastic, particularly that what looks like a huge drinks trolley in the background. Is that what that is? It's no, like not, three tiers it, of the stuff. Yeah, it's not that big. It's not that big, but it might appear bigger on Zoom. But it's, uh, yeah. There's a drink. So th- there is a story behind this. I've lived in this flat since 2000. And when I was a student, so no way. I, thought I, rent, I rented this flat when I was a student and then the owner wanted to sell it. So I bought it. And uh, so it's a small one bedroom flat. And when I moved into it, it it's, it's in a Regency Street. So it was built in the 1820s, the house this flat is in. And it was, it was okay, but it needed some work doing on it. But I was a student, couldn't afford. I put everything into, the, into getting the flat. So I've never been able to do what I'd like to do with it. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And the problem with this was, because it's so old, you couldn't just paint and buy furniture because it needed rewiring. Uh, it need, everything needed completely redoing. Uh, like the, You couldn't just paint the windows because it needed to go back to the masonry because the, 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 uh, because the woodwork needed redoing. The glass in the windows is, the, is original 1820s, except one pane. So I didn't have the money to do this sort of thing. So I saved for years and years and then finally got enough money just to do, because the ceiling had to come down and the walls, every wall had to come up, the floor uh, came up and everything. So- uh, Breaking course, down walls, man. So, so I'm really, I'm really, really happy that you said that this is a good aesthetic because I really appreciate aesthetic, but I have no taste at all myself. I, I can only ever- create good spaces if I get help so a friend of mine had retired and retrained as an interior decorator 
And she came to my flat and she, we, she just basically worked with me about, you know, what do you enjoy and we, or what color schemes do you like and all the rest of it. And she did this for me. And of course it is totally my happy place. I and mean, when I come in and I shut the door, uh, it's a small space, but I absolutely love it. And when, when I, and I, I, I am a private person. So it was a bit difficult when lockdown happened and suddenly you have to start broadcasting from your flat because this is my, this is where I go. So I, I had this one position, which is not so similar to where we're talking from, where I would sort of position it, where people couldn't really see that much. But I started getting all these emails saying, I really like your lounge. And I'm thinking, that's not the lounge. It's the whole flat. Look, you know, there's the kitchen. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> you know, it's the, yeah, yeah. Laundry drying on the back of the so, chair. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> you In fact, oh. you've, you've angled it just like the tidiest bit. <laughs> so it's a, it is a, it is a normal, normal flat. So, um, yeah. So, so, and she just, there's a couple of things where I said, no, no, no. And she said, oh, for God's sake, you just don't know what you're talking about. I do. <laughs> trust me. So, uh, and I just gave way. Uh, but it, th this place uh, gives me genuine joy, genuine happiness. Uh, and it's just amazing to, have to live somewhere where when you close the door and you just look at the place, you feel so at ease and so comfortable. It's so important. And I feel very, very lucky that I have it. But yeah, but I've lived here since it was a student flat uh, and just invested in it. I've never gotten to the property ladder and done all that sort of stuff, which my friends think are crazy. Well, it looks fantastic. And uh, I mean, it really is. It's, it's, and it's as for the nice. drinks trolley. Yeah. Uh, so when I did that uh, interview recently with the Times, they, they did a photograph and that was in it, that, they, that there was a bit of it in it. And somebody wrote to me and said, is that a prop for the photograph or was that your drinks trolley? And I said, no, I just thought, well, I'll never reply. It, it was mine. I just replied. And then turns out that he works for a gin company and spotted that bottle of gin on my drink and my thing and sent a bottle of the gin to my Oh, great. <laughs> what gin company? Yeah. Hendrix. Oh, great. Oh, nice. Good quality gin. Although Brighton Gin is my favourite gin, can I just Brighton say? Brighton Gin is the best gin. We all know this. Um, yeah. So talking about feeling comfortable and at home in Hove, obviously your local party went through a transition, really, during the Corbyn years, uh, as did your majority, swelled by the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. So in an odd way, you're probably quite grateful for, uh, for, for the Corbyn years. But what was it like having momentum all of a sudden in your, in your party? Um, was it a fractious time for you? Do you ever think you were going to get deselected? God, there's about 10 questions in that. Uh, you know, and I, I would never be thankful for what the party went through for that period just because my majority goes up. You know, it would be this, it would be the same as saying I'm thankful for Brexit because my majority's gone up, because that was another big issue of the, of the moment, which was one of the driving factors for it. But uh, yes, I mean, there was just a profound change. Uh, so you know, I've been a member here in this local party, you know, since the late 90s. So there were people in here who've been friends for a very long time. And, you know, we, the branch meetings were small meetings and we, it was above a pub just around the corner. You go down into the pub afterwards and just continue having a chat. And, you know, there would always be people you, dif you have differences with. And there'd be some people where you go, God, don't mention that in front of so-and-so because it'll send him off, you know, go off on one. So it was all that sort of, it was very, but it was much more like Vicar of Dibley than it was anything else, you know, because it was yeah. very, very friendly, very, very, very lovely, kind characters, uh, characterful people. Uh, and then suddenly, so when I was selected as the candidate in June 15th, 2013, it was, there was 477 members of the party and I knew every one of them because, I, I, you know, I walked 400, 
426 miles in that selection. Uh, and during that period, I got to know all the ones who didn't turn up to meetings and things. So uh, then Jeremy Corbyn gets elected leader. And then my party, within a matter of weeks, had gone to 3,000. So that was the problem that we wow. had. Wow. Because, uh, and, and this is what I'm keen to say to people about at that time, because a lot of things came into the party at the same time. Uh, if you've got 3,000 people coming into a party, you've got it all. I mean, you have it all. Uh, and we had it all. Um, but you had, you did have some really genuinely nice people who were still in the party, who were, who, who were really supportive of Keir, who have been very kind, supportive friends to me. Uh, there was also this other element, which was, uh, which brought in a, a sort of thuggishness, a sort of incivility. Uh, and the problem is, if you've got 50 nice people in the room and two people who are uh, really hostile and actually don't share the norms of sort of decency when you're amongst other people, of course, the tone they those two people set sets the tone for the whole room. It's mm -hmm. not the decent people that set the tone for the whole room. And that was what was happening. It was a very small minority who poisoned a, the, the debate, the tone. Uh, they made people feel they would do things that were so counter to the norms of the way you interact with people, you know, just, just as everyday members of a society, any society, any group of people. And that made life very, very difficult. So just in, in, but also they couldn't get to know me. I couldn't get to know them because there's so many of them. Yeah. I mean, how could I get to know 3000 people? And, you know, so, so they were believing because they couldn't get to know me personally. Firstly, they couldn't, they believed everything that was sent to them by email, which was coming from the local head of Momentum, who was just making stuff up and emailing it to them. And they were believing. I mean, sometimes people would stand up in meetings and accuse me of, the most extraordinary things. What like? You know, one, well, you know, one time they, 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 somebody stood up and said, you have no right to talk about uh, austerity because you voted for austerity. And, you, and they listed a whole things, set of things that I actually voted against. Yeah. That I vote, that they say, but they still, after I explained that I voted against these things in Parliament, they wouldn't believe it. They believed what they were told, not what yeah. I said. And also, you'd uh, only become an MP in 2015, so you wouldn't have been in Parliament for the... No, they, they were talking about a load of other sort of, uh, votes that had come afterwards, like George Osborne's uh, fiscal responsibility bill and all these other sort of, you know, game playing things he did at the beginning. Um, so, but the thing is that, you know, there are people in my party who are far to the left of me and far to the right of me and different, have, have you know, some of them have single issues that brought them to the party. Other, mm. other people have different motivations. We all sort of shamble through it together and we always find ways of liking each other uh, through all of this uh, and that's what any you know movement needs to be about uh, but the trouble is when you have that many people in the party it's very difficult to, to establish that kind of relationship with people uh, so that's why that's why it was very difficult uh, in terms of the two elections that, that uh, came up it's it's really important to say that what actually did happen because my majority in 2015 was 1,236 and we overturned a Tory majority of just under 2,000 here. And that was in a general election in which we were slaughtered nationwide. People forget how bad that defeat was in 2015 under Ed Miliband because it's been obliterated by you know, a worse period and a worse defeat. Um, but it was a tough battle uh, here, uh, Ilford North, of course, with Wes and a few others, you know, there were only 10 seats across the country where Labour took seats off the Tories. And I think each of them tells a really interesting story. 
But when the, my majority went up to almost 19,000 in 2017, there was a whole bunch of different things that were, that were uh, in effect. And some of those forces are still in, in, at play today. Uh, it would be wrong to say that people suddenly, you know, or in, a, in a Tory seat, where if your majority is going to go up that much, it can only come from former Tory voters, major, you know, predominantly. I mean, I, I won in 20. Uh, 15, I think, with about 18,000 votes, 19,000 votes, but that went up to 38,000 votes. Uh, so a lot of people who voted Tory previously and, you know, in multiple elections suddenly were voting Labour. Uh, the only way to really understand it when you look at the numbers is that this community, uh, like a lot of communities up and down the country, does big things. You know, Chasham and Amersham is a good example. And it's a good example because it, they, their community decided to do a different thing. Uh, but here, it became very anti-Tory, uh, very quickly. Uh, and that was because clearly people who were motivated by Brexit took a view on Brexit. We were a metropolitan community, so clearly we were a Remain community, 70% Remain. But then there was another thing that was driving it as well. And that was, you know, we have our, our Tory community here, by and large, is a one-nation Tory community. It is a long-standing, intergenerational uh, respect for the norms of what the Tory party stands for, decency, you know, that's on their own terms, decency, yeah. economic stability, uh, rational economic policy, and conservatism, not doing things that are, that are too radical and too uh, moving away from where evidence says is the right thing to do. So suddenly Tories were repelled by the populism on the right. They weren't attracted to populism on the, on the left, but this other thing happened during the uh, election that was a really strange thing. So, so clearly all these sorts of things were disrupting the way people voted. And then Jeremy Corbyn came to Sussex and did an interview with BBC Sussex uh, and in it five times refused to say whether I was a good MP or not. And it, it, it became a very big news story regionally because I was the only Labour MP in the whole area. So of course I was the only MP that they could in the, in the BBC South East uh, region. I was the only Labour MP. So I was the only so so of course they were going to ask about me, um, but of course there was a lot of hostile there was a lot of um, there's four synagogues in Hove there's a lot of there was a lot of uh, question marks about Jeremy uh, and his character and his his worldview. So basically Jeremy came here and answered that question for them as well. Uh, you know he basically reassured them that I wasn't you know part of his the project that wanted to fundamentally change Labour away from its long-standing values and traditions. So these two things happened, Brexit, or three things, Brexit, the, the, the Tory party becoming populist and one nation Tories locally uh, really being sort of finding that repellent and Jeremy himself coming here and saying that I wasn't part of his, his project. So all these things. So in a community that became anti-Tory and then they will always look to Labour first because we're the only Labour party that can form a party of government. So they would consider us first and they saw they had a candidate that, 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 that sort of ticked a lot of the boxes that they needed. So they all kind of went there. In Cheshire and Amersham, you know, they took a different decision. Obviously, the, the, the Lib Dems were in second place. Uh, but they will always consider, communities will always consider Labour first if they're going to do something big and then move on to the other parties afterwards. So we've got to make sure going forward, because I do believe the country is in a mood to do big things and is, is always up for doing big things. Um, and we just need to make sure that we're the we're the the, the reciprocal of all these sort of communities that are, are, that are willing to move on mass in quite a big way. The other thing is, if you look at the numbers 
the 2015 victory here in Hove, same as Ilford North and a whole series of other ones, seats we won in, in 2015. It is very, very similar locally as to what we need to achieve nationwide. Very similar in terms of the swing, but also where the votes have to come from. Uh, here, you know, the, the, the Lib Dems had 2015, uh, 15,000 votes before 2015. They lost their deposit uh, in, in the subsequent elections uh, until 2019, where they got a few thousand again. Uh, but uh, and then the majority of the votes coming from the Tories. So squeezing the left, uh, attracting the, the centrist uh, or the, the centre ground float, floating voters, people who are up for sort of voting where they think uh, the leadership and the party in the, in the right place. So what we did locally is needs to happen nationwide. And that's why I'm, I'm quite keen to talk about these sorts of things going forward. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So when Corbyn does that interview where he refuses to say five times, there's almost something biblical about that, isn't it? A, a, a cock should have crowed somewhere in the distance when he denied friendship or, or you know, respect for Peter Kyle. Did part there of There are think... some people out there that, that make even more biblical references to uh, to JC, but yeah. Of course. <laughs> anyway. Do, do, um, did part of you think, actually, that's done me a favour? Were, were you kind of secretly pleased? I mean, if it had said part Peter's a great MP, would you have been gutted? Part of me. I was punching the air. <laughs> um, I was with a group of people when we saw it. And some of them just looked at me because it was a bit embarrassing. And then a couple of people looked over and just said, oh, God, how do we handle that? And, um, uh, and I said, fantastic. Let's shove it on the leaflet. You know, it's, it was fine. I mean, look, I, I understand this community. And there's a lot of people here who had, had a lot of sympathy for Jeremy Corbyn and I am never going to sneer at them for supporting him. I think there was a lot of hope uh, that he inspired in people. Uh, I just, and I'm sorry that it worked out in the way it did. Uh, it's, but ultimately, uh, the hope that he offered was a very different offering than the policies that underlay it in the end, and also the tone that was inspired in the politics uh, that. That, that ensued uh, and I'm sorry about that you know and also the electorate in 2017 of course Theresa May was traveling up and down the country reminding people why they hate Tories but uh, Jeremy did you know his 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 absolute uh, um, opposition and vocal passionate instinctive opposition to austerity and everything that he'd done it clearly did 
uh, work with a large section of the of the population, much greater to a much greater extent than I had anticipated. So that you know, there were things that I did learn from that experience in a positive way that has informed the politician I am going forward. So I'm not saying it was, you know, that it was all just, you know, one thing. Uh, but overall, uh, it was it was a very difficult experience just simply because of the the instability of the of what it meant internally. And also, you know, I, I'm I'm somebody who is sort of instinctively always looking to the electorate always looking to the electorate. And what was happening to the party at that time was that there was this pull into the party. You know, they didn't want me to stand up and say, this is what our community has as its priority, this, this moment in time. They wanted to talk about what their priorities were as a party. Uh, and that was very, very difficult because I, I'm not interested that, you know, I, I, I'm the MP for everyone who lives in, in Hogan Port Slade. And, and in 2015, in, in the election running up to 2015, uh, Ed Miliband had, you know, this this sort of community activism um, system that was up and running, and we were given very very clear instructions as candidates as to what we were to do and what questions we were to ask. It felt completely counter to me as to how to get the best out of our community to understand our community. So I scrapped it. Uh, had had a massive battle with the party. They threatened to stop funding for me and stuff. But basically, rather than going up on every door at the very beginning of the campaign and saying how did you vote last time? If it's election tomorrow, who do you vote for? Yeah. And who do you think's got the best policies? Uh, we, we just had one question. Uh, what, what's on your mind today? And suddenly people would start saying about what was happening in the neighborhood, in their lives, in their work, and all the rest of it. And we wrote everything down. And we found a way of putting that into the system so that we could just put key issues. I went into this as a candidate in 2013 because I wanted to end youth unemployment in this community because it was very high at that time. By the time the election came round, uh, it was well within within it, within a month of starting to do the door knocking as a candidate. It was blindingly obvious that what was the biggest priority for the community was trains. Southern Rail had gone into into absolute spasm. Oh my god! Uh, descended into total chaos, and thirty four thousand people left this community every day for work at that point by train. Uh, so people were having a miserable experience, and that's what they were talking about over the breakfast tables is what they were talking about when we were on the doorsteps is what they were talking about if they saw me in the street at the weekends so by the time that election came round i knew every i knew the timetable for all three uh for all three the uh, rain the train stations in the constituency of hoven port slade i knew the year every piece of rolling stock was built that traveled through our community every single day i knew that i knew inside and out i was the 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 community's biggest train nerd. Your train so spotter. I could say, yeah, well, I was. So somebody would come to the door and say, oh my goodness, yesterday I didn't get home to work till till 10.30. And I would say, God, were you on the 5.38 from Victoria? Did you know that that, that train, da, 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 did you realise this, this, this? And I said, the problem is that, you know, on the Coastaway route, you've got trains, the 313 class that were built in 1976. They don't have toilets on it. So older people and people with disabilities can't get, uh, can't use that service. You know, what we need to do is this, this, this. So, you know, it, it just showed that I was, their priorities were my priorities. And that's the way I've always been as an MP since. I've tried, I've aspired to be uh, as an MP since. So when the party changed so profoundly and they wanted to, I mean, they would have, they would have debated a very important issue, the Israel-Palestine conflict, but they would have debated that three times a week, every single week, uh, and not done 
uh, not even made time at all, really, if, 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 if truth was to be told, for the issues that were really, really impacting people's lives in this constituency, in the community right at that moment, specifically here. Um, and for me, uh, that's just counter to what we're in politics for. Yes, we, can, we, can, we do need to find time to do the, the big global issues, but uh, the priorities here are the priorities for me. And every time I ask myself the question, every time that there is a big issue that happens, whether it be Brexit, COVID, I look out the window because you can see where I live uh, and it's a quite a high density area. And I think, what do they want for me right now? And that's, that's where I start. I mean, the railways are something that the Corbyn left is obsessed with. That should have been something it's that true, you had in common. That could have it's been a true. wonderful bridge. It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. So um, what about Labour now then? Because as you, as you say, or as you hint at, all wasn't well when Ed Miliband was leader. Uh, for a number of reasons, not just the practices, perhaps, that they wanted local candidates to uh, deliver that would have been counterproductive in terms of getting elected, but where the Labour Party was and was out of step with the country, and the election result uh, reflected that. There's then 2017 and 2019 under Corbyn, and now Keir Starmer is leader. So uh, are things improving? There's a really key difference, which I've not detected since I got elected in 2015, and that's that... The Labour Party, it wants to win an election. You know, we've got a leader that really wants to become prime minister, and he's acting in a way that, that is a prime minister in waiting. Uh, it, that, in, the, in the eyes of you know, the electorate as well, you know, this isn't just me saying it. Uh, you know, actually, people do recognise his, his leadership qualities. Now, we're not there yet. Keir is the first person that says, you know, when, when you have private conversations with Keir, you know, he is very blunt about the what needs to happen and the, the pace at which he expects it to happen. You know, he is driven. Uh, that's something I really respect. He's blunt and he's he's to the point. And uh, you know, these these are all sort of these are all the sort of signs of the foundations of the Labour Party getting back to where the public really really expects us to be uh, on a local level. Uh, party politics has been absolutely transformed. Uh, there has been people who have left the party. There are some people who have been expelled from the party. But in all of the meetings I have these days, it is a really civil, pleasant experience, much bigger than before, uh, before uh, the 2015 period. But it's, uh, it's, it's nice, actually. You know, it's very supportive, very robust, uh, vigorous. Uh, but it's, it is a very different beast than it was before. And pe- people need to see and recognise, actually, that civility is returning to the Labour Party. Something about his character he's talked about and and has been said about him is resilience. And obviously, um, losing a parent early on in his life was was such a big deal. And seeing his mum be very ill was was such a big deal to him. Um, And that has obviously forged part of his character. And something he said on this show, and and on Piers Morgan, is, you know, when you've been through something like that, then political disagreements actually feel very small, and that's correct. You've been through that as well. Um, in 2012, you had a you had a terrible year where you lose your mum and the love of your life, and uh, undoubtedly, probably the worst year of your life. I mean, that's not that long ago. Um, how hard was that to deal with? I'm going to be quite careful with my words because there's a lot I want to say about grief and what it does to you and recovering from it, uh, but I'm not quite there yet. 
Uh, I'm not quite ready to talk uh, openly about that period in a way that I, I have in other parts of my life, uh, other than to say that grief is, um, and, and that grief on that to that extent, because they, I both I lost them both in the space of one week, and uh, it is very profound. I mean, it is it is uh, it's, it's a brutalizing pro process to go through that that kind of grief. And, uh, but, you know, there is no good that comes of it, uh, but you, you do have the opportunity to move forward in different directions. And that's what happened with me. You sort of rebuild, but you rebuild differently. And uh, you, there are traits that come out of it. Uh, there are ways I react in certain situations. There is, a, there is an empathy with other people's suffering that, 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 that comes from it. Um, yeah, but there's no question that, that it is a very uh, elemental, profound, and much, much more um, uh, changing experience than 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 anybody who hasn't suffered it realizes. And I've seen it in other in my, in my best friend who went through went through something very profound as well in, in terms of grief. I thought I understood by supporting him through it. I really didn't. But you know, these are things that uh, I hope I'll have the right time to talk about at some point. Um, but because I think it is something that, that I kind of owe it to people to to talk about. But I'll do so at the at the right time. Because we're slowly becoming more enlightened about mental health as a society. It seems to take an. I mean, it's remarkable that in twenty twenty one we seem so, so far behind on talking about these things. I remember my mum saying to me because obviously, as you talk about it in an elemental way, we know that. None of us will live forever, and that has implications for us and our loved ones, and you know, in so many ways. Uh, and you just kind of accept it as a fact of life. But I remember my mum saying to me, "Grief is something we just don't deal with as a society properly." And as a kid, I just thought, "Well, that's just because we know it's coming." And you know, I didn't really think about it. But actually, the more I think about it, the more I think it's incredible that not just as a society, but as a species, we don't really, we don't really sort of deal with it properly. We don't, kind of... but also there's different types of there's different types of grief, and there is you know, we've known since our you know since very early age. You know, when you go just a bit beyond being toddler and you uh, stage, and you start to realise that actually you know animals die, and therefore people are going to die. Therefore, oh my god, you know my mum and dad are going to die. Yeah. You know, there's that moment where you sort of realise these things, and you're all a bit overwhelmed by it, but. So there is, there is a, uh, even though losing a parent is, is, is really very, very difficult, it's something you've almost been preparing for your whole life. Mm. Uh, that, that's not to, that is absolutely not to under, uh, underplay just what a profound experience that is, but it is, it is something natural about that cycle. Um, there is a, another thing altogether when something steps out of that cycle and uh you know that you lose somebody you know that you just simply shouldn't at certain points and, and and many of us will experience that uh and that is something that is much much it's a very different experience because there, there is also you know lots of other things that, that that play into it um so you know but, but with my mum, uh you know it, it, it was it was you know it was a very different set of experiences but also you know, I will talk about it at some point, uh, and it's good to do so in the context of what's going on with more awareness about mental health. But I think the Olympics, going back to that, it was really striking for this Olympics was just how openly mental health was 
being spoken about in a way that I've never known before. Um, and it's quite what interesting for me was uh, I can't remember her name. I'm terrible with athletes. Simone I Biles. The next thing. Yeah, Simone Biles. I, I actually that's one thing I did tune in for when she did her final performance on the was it is it the, called the bar? I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Is it the I bar? So, yeah. I think yeah, it is the like, bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that thing that goes uh, across like that, yeah, yeah, exactly. that stick thing. I've got a friend who is a social media influencer and he's got squillions of followers. And he does, he's got this beautiful body and he's a model and he does, he inspires young people to do gymnastics and really. And he does, I, I've been with him and he does all these sort of backflips and all the rest of it. And now when I see him, I just go, Yeah, do that on a bar, yeah, do that on something that's <laughs> like that wide, you know, an inch wide. I, I was absolutely stunned by by what I was seeing, and of, of course I was in floods of tears by the time she finished because it was just such a powerful performance. And then you know what she's, you know, again, it's not just the physical things she's battling with; she's battling with something in her mind, whether it's confidence, whether it's self belief, whether you know, God knows what's going on in there, but it's something that she is battling with. And to see all of that play out with such beauty and precision and athleticism was was just for me it was totally overwhelming but i i know because i've had conversations with people who say you know why are these athletes talking about mental health why don't they just shut up and do it you know i what can't we go back to a day when they just turn up do their thing and go home there's a sort of dignity and a kind of um facade to it that people respected you know there's somebody uh, fairly close to me that you know referenced beyond borg and you know, why can't we go back to that day where you have these sort of, you know, those sorts of figures that are just sort of introverted, turn up, you know, leave it all on the, uh, you know, where they're doing the sport and then, you know, basically go away. My response to that is, firstly, we're the ones that are doing asking the questions. They're not standing there gushing, uh, you know, and with uh, Naomi Osaka, you know, it was, you know, she... If, if people just asked her about certain things at these press conferences, maybe she'd be happy talking about her backswing and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, she has endlessly asked personal questions that she might actually be, be struggling with and might not want a public debate about it. I mean, you very politely allowed me to skirt over the, the grief stuff. Um, but when you're in a press conference, some people aren't that that polite. So um, I can be less so, polite so, so if you like. Does I know you wouldn't dare, would you? Because you'd look too nice. The um, the so, so so that's that's one aspect of it. But there's a flip side which I thought was really interesting, uh, and that's when I saw PT being interviewed when he got home. A really amazing BBC interview, and he was asked, "What? How did you prepare for the Olympics?" And he said, "What his routine was, his physical routine was." And then he just quite, you know, he just said in it. But I really, he said, it was really difficult. He said, because uh, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I was exhausted. He said, the biggest battle I had was with my, uh, my mind, getting into the right frame of mind. Now, he didn't realize he was making a statement about mental health. And it was actually the flip side of what other people have been saying. And isn't it interesting that we see, we see an athlete that, that collapses, whether it's running whether it's performing in any other way, we saw it with BMX and others and in the riding, they crash or something, they, a ligament goes or something, suddenly they're limping. And we all accept that actually they've pushed their body too far. But when somebody actually expresses a mental health problem and they can't perform because of what's going inside in their head, we treat it fundamentally differently. And actually athletes at that level 
are pushing their brains so far. They're pushing so much pressure on themselves. They are dealing with stresses and strains and you know, trying to focus and do, you know, to, to, to make their body, you can only, their body can only do stuff if their brain is instructing it in the right way. Uh, all of this sort of stuff. So some of them were just defeated by, uh, by, by their brains. And I thought that was really interesting. So the flip side is, is Petey acknowledging that actually getting to the right frame of mind was the biggest battle he had because he, he had to battle exhaustion. You can only battle exhaustion if, if your head will do so. And then on the other side, we saw some athletes who literally just couldn't complete, compete because their brains weren't in the right place. Perhaps in the past, this has all been covered up, you know, and, and um, uh, people who have failed and underperformed have just done so. And we haven't known um, some of the issues that, that, that are driving that, that lack of performance at that particular moment in time. But I hope that we can broaden the conversation about this and acknowledge that you can only succeed if your mental health is absolutely in the right place. And a lot of cause of failure at elite, athlete, at elite sports is driven by uh, the, the state of mind as well, uh, because that would actually, it would help a lot of us just, you know, acknowledge because we see these people competing, you know, I, I go to the gym, I don't compete like them, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm inspired by them. Uh, so and some politics inspiring. as well, top level politics. No questions. Highly pressured. No you know, question. you hear about Thatcher getting four hours sleep a night, Tony Blair after Iraq, you know, waking up in the middle of the night. And anyway, the pressure of leadership, not necessarily a burden that the, the current incumbent of number 10 necessarily feels, but those who are intense yeah. about politics and care about getting those outcomes definitely feel that. And the arena in which politics is conducted has always been ferocious. It's probably more ferocious now than it's been for a long time. What can politics do to improve um, uh, the mental health of those involved in it to, and, and to reduce that as a, an anxiety for those who want to come in, stop it being such a, a repellent arena. I mean, do, do MPs need to get up in the Commons and talk more about their mental health? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it's something that I've been reticent to do because I mean, based on the conversation and all the things I've been talking about here, uh, I, I do try not to make it about me. Uh, and when you do talk about issues, I try to try, if I talk about personal experience, I try to do so in a way that is helpful to other people. Because I think if you're a politician, then you've got to use that platform uh, in some way that either changes policy or enables other people to do things that they're struggling with or to overcome barriers or create opportunities that they didn't have before. And if there are dyslexics out there that feel they now have opportunities that they didn't have before because of you know the way I've overcome stuff, then God, that would be amazing. But I, I don't think politicians just standing up and saying, you know, t t talking about problems uh, is always the, the best way, but, it, but it, it does need to inform the way that we make decisions as a parliament and the way that we do policy. And it is very, very powerful when we're legislating or making decisions, when people stand up and talk about personal experience and how that, that impacts uh, the, the issue we're talking about. Rosie Duffield standing up and talking about domestic abuse, incredibly powerful. Uh, and we've had similar issues, you know, and also, you know, Johnny Mercer talking about conflict, you know, when we're talking about the armed forces, you know, so th these sorts of things are uh, important. And actually that happens in a less uh, prominent way quite often in, in Parliament. And it's it's very important um but i think ultimately our job as parliamentarians is to to get on and pass better quality laws i think that's the that's the thing that we should be putting all of our energy into at the moment 
just the thing about mental health and, and the job that we're doing as politicians, I, I've spoken more openly than most about the challenges of the job. Uh, when you first become an MP, it is the learning curve is huge. I mean, it's much higher than I expected. You know, I was 43. I was, I was 43 when I got elected. Was I? No, I was 45 when I got elected. I was 43 when I got selected as a candidate. And, you know, I had set two charities up in the past with a team of people. I had set a business up with investment and we've done very well. I got a doctorate. I'd gone through all these, I'd overcome all these challenges. I've had a lot of experience in different walks of life. And even so, it was an entirely different kettle of fish because you're basically doing, you know, several jobs simultaneously. You're a social worker because of the people who turn to you for support in surgeries and so forth. You're a chief executive because you've got two teams and you need to make sure that, that people have a very robust uh, framework uh, for employment. You know, they get all of the protections and support that, the, that anyone should get in any other job. And you've got a team in parliament, a team down here in Hove. You've got to learn to be a media commentator. You've got to be a parliamentarian. And a parliamentarian is a profession. It is a job. It is something you need to learn how to do. It does not come by accident, it, like any other. Um, you know, when people have said to me about, oh, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a politician, I, I, I say back to them, whatever their job is, oh, I'm thinking of becoming a doctor. You know, oh, I'm thinking of becoming a teacher. <laughs> oh, really? I'm thinking of doing that too. You know, I, I think I could become an airline pilot in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, it is it is a job that you should aspire to learn how to do. It's a profession. And we've got to say it's a profession. And it yeah. is great that people come into it from all walks of life. But don't think because you've succeeded in another walk of life, you can suddenly just succeed at politics. Mm. You've got to, you've got to or, or particularly as a parliamentarian, you've got to learn. And I've taken very, very seriously, very earnestly, the process of learning the people I've sat with and asked a whole series of questions. So who you asked? Who are the people? Who are the people that you the, the, the Commons is was was the biggest challenge for me. I found the Commons, and I've done a lot of public speaking in the past, and I found the Commons far more intimidating than I expected. That I would. So what uh, is really, it, I, I, what is it about it that's intimidating? Because people talk about the architecture. But actually, when you're standing there, you think it's actually a beautiful arena to be able to stand up and, and talk in. Yeah, I mean, it's some, I, it does bug me when people go weak at the knees over the building itself. Uh, oh. For me, I, I used to love it before I became one. No, no, no. It's just, so this is one of the tiles. The people can't is. see. People can't see your face when I said that. Uh, I, uh, look, I let me just clarify that. I think the building is incredible. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I love, there are moments when I go into Westminster Hall in particular, I just sit there when it's quiet late at night, just, just, just to think of what's happened in that space. It's a very special thing. But the second I became an MP, it all changed. Uh, I go there to wrestle out of that place what I'm there to do. You know, I go to battle for people who need me to go there and just do it. I'm not sentimental about anything other than doing that job. I'm not sentimental about anything in, in that place. Uh, and, you know, when I hear people saying what type, when a statue was built and, you know, who leant against it 200 years ago and all that sort of stuff, I, I think, you know, when I'm booted out of office, if I'm deselected or, you know, booted out or move on or whatever, I'll probably go back and really just start to enjoy the, the building again and just sort of understand that side of it. For me, it's a place. And people from my background, you know, can get too overwhelmed by these places, you know, actually just go there, wrestle out of the place what you need, and come home after a, a solid day's work. But the, the, the commons itself, um, when you first go there, the language is, uh, is strange because everything is regulated. What you say, what you sit, what you wear is regulated, the way you look, the way you sound, when you can speak, 
Uh, none of it is intuitive. You have to learn it. Uh, the bobbing stuff is, it takes a while getting used to. Um, and the... That's when you're trying to stand up and catch the speaker's eye. So when you're standing up and down, you yeah. have to, speak the, to catch the speaker's eye. Um, so you go in there thinking everything should change. It's all completely archaic. And then after, I tell everyone who's new intake now, just to wait before you, before you stand up and say, oh God, everything needs to change and mm. whatever. Because bobbing is fantastic. Yeah, and now we've had now we've had lists, and we've gone into lotteries for lists. I, I mean, I'll be amazed if anybody uh, thinks that uh, lists are a better system than bobbing. Um, so why is bobbing better? Sponta- spontaneous. You never the, the minister never knows who's going to be called next. Okay. So if you right. go into a lottery, the list is published. You know, the night before you're going to get called to speak. Nice. So the minister will go. Peter Kyle is speaking on uh, on health and social care, and he's been in the news constantly about uh, care homes. I wonder what he's going to say. Yeah. So when you ask a question, it's, it's supposed to be completely spontaneous and the minister stands up and reads the answer, even though it's not entirely related. Mm-hmm. They, they had a guess at what you were going to say and they just read the answer. Spontaneity goes. And ministers get away with absolute murder when, they don't have, when, they, when there's no spontaneity. Uh, they need to be thinking on their feet. They need to be... Um, in, in fact, you know, Pat McFadden uh, once lent... Ian Duncan Smith was struggling on his feet... Uh, he was a strong person with a weak argument, and that's what the Commons is very good at, get, at, at, at getting to the bottom of. Mm. Pat McFadden leant forward and go, said into my ear, "This is a really good bullshit detector." At the end of the, uh, when everything is said and done, the Commons is a very good bullshit detector. Yeah, and it is uh, where the Commons it is worst is when you have a weak person with a strong argument, because it can it can really uh, it can really knock people for six. Um, and that's when, that's when you start to feel, you know, hang on, everyone, this isn't kind. This isn't how we should mm-hmm. do things. You know, so you'll have somebody who's an introvert or somebody who's struggling to make the argument, but actually what they're saying is really interesting. And suddenly you know that with noise, with heckling, with something, you can disrupt uh, what they're saying uh, and it should be more used more wisely is all I'm saying. So for mental um, health, so the commons, should, should the commons be a less raucous place? Should that be enforced better? No. No, it should be enforced. It should be more targeted, but uh, but it, it, it works. You know, our system our system is unusual. It's a bare pit. You know, people are really, you know, this is where we have to be really careful in politics. And I, I know that I'm out of step with some of this. Uh, you get so much mail saying, why don't you grow up, join PMQs and stop the heckling, stop acting like children. Can I have a ticket, please? <laughs> yeah, in, in almost six years of doing the job, Never once, not once, have I had someone contact me and ask to come to an education debate or a health mm-hmm. debate. Uh, but I'll get, you know, a dozen a week asking to come to PMQs. And very, very often they'll say, why don't you all grow up in it? Could you get my, me and my family tickets, please? <laughs> you know, it's sort of, um, you know, so, you know, what people say and what their sort of base instincts are, and maybe they're, they're not linking the two together is yeah. slightly different. Um, the robustness of our of our politics is and look I, I, as I say I've been very open about how challenging I found it to start with and you know my voice was so squeaky somebody showed me a clip of something I said on Brexit like uh, and I'd only been it was before the referendum so I'd only been in there for less than a year yeah. and I made a point about Northern Ireland and somebody showed me the clip and said oh look at this this is what you said in in uh, uh, June 2016 on Northern Ireland before the referendum had even happened and I'd forgotten I'd said this and, and I said, God, that's really interesting, isn't it? Can you hear my voice? And my voice was just really squeaky because I was literally like, you know, yeah. shaking away, you know, knees knocking away. 
And I say this honestly to kids because it's important. They, they see us as being overconfident, alpha, sort of, you know, and they look at us and don't, don't think they can ever be it. Uh, that, that we, we look distant. The way we act is very distant to most people's experiences. But in actual fact, you know, when I, there's a lot of humanity behind it. There's a lot of teamwork behind it. There is one person who's not from my party who, uh, who, who's brutalised in the Commons, and I think probably for quite good reason, because they said something that was quite stupid, uh, and the Commons went absolutely berserk. And I saw this person go absolutely ashen and uh, clearly had just realised what a mistake it was. And I popped round with a, uh, a bottle of whiskey and two glasses to their office a bit later on. And uh, this person just threw their arms around me and just sort of like, you know, so there is a, a you know, I think we have Who to be, um, I'm not telling you who that is, am I? <laughs> Why is it whiskey I... a giveaway? Was it a Scottish MP? No, no, uh, I'm not saying anything. Uh, a, a very <laughs> decent person, but just in, in the wrong party. Uh, so, but so there is a lot of support and warmth uh, behind it as well. Uh, and, and people don't get yeah. to see that. You don't get to see the humour either you know, behind the scenes and the sort of camaraderie, which yes. is a shame. But I'm just thinking about you now, obviously, highly driven, academically gifted, <laughs> had, but, but you've got a doctorate and overcome yeah. all sorts of things and a great parliamentarian, reasonable, can reach out, has, has managed to build a coalition in Brighton that Labour needs to build. In I wouldn't country. say I'm a great parliamentarian. I, I aspire to be a great parliamentarian. And I think I'm, uh, every, I think every year I've been in the job as being an MP, I'm probably better at it than the previous year. And that's the only thing I judge myself by. I think I'm a much better MP than I was to start with. And I think uh, I really regretted joining the Brexit stuff. Uh, I, I looked at people who've been in there for 20 years and I regretted I didn't have their uh, skill at debating and their, 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 their the, the skill at working parliament. You know, I... I, I uh, you know, you, you talk about Thatcher and Blair and the hours they put in, and other you know, big figures. In that period, that's the only. You know, I was putting in. I was there till two or three in the morning. You know, just just reading, learning, reading transcripts of previous debates, uh, speaking to everyone who would speak to me, who who was very experienced in uh, in politics. Uh, so you know, you ask who I speak to about stuff. Ken Clark was very decent to me about giving advice about being an MP. Great. Not helping me, you know, not 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 making a statement about anything. He's just, he at the time he was father of the house. He took it very seriously, and he was very generous with the advice about how you speak and all the rest of it. Well, so, I mean, yeah. you may not say of yourself that you're a great parliamentarian. So I people... finished. I finished your sentence for you then, and stopped you saying <laughs> what you're inevitably going to be. Don't you have a great career ahead? And everything. I stopped well, you exactly, saying, exactly. How's that? How's Maybe, that and which means you're modest as well, which is another great character trait. <laughs> and, and as you said in that answer, um, uh, clearly ahead for detail and hard work. And you're a photogenic guy. You're in good shape. Oh, God. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> all these things, all the, all, all the big things are there and, and the small <laughs> things are there as well. And, you know, you, people would definitely look to you, wouldn't they, and say, this is a guy that needs to be prime minister someday. Oh, I was waiting for you to say that. You, clearly, you were about to sort of uh, peak. <laughs> I thought you were going to peak two, you know, like 30 seconds ago, but, you know, well done. Um, so I, I just, um, I, yeah, I, it's hard to say this and sound as sincere as I actually am. I, I, I give my job 100%. Uh, and if I, if I couldn't give my job 100%, I wouldn't do it. And 
I know the things I need to do better. And I'm really focused at, at doing that. Uh, I'm really glad I've had this experience on the front bench. Working for David Lammy was like a masterclass. Uh, as I said, I took very seriously learning the House of Commons. I mean, I'll just tell you, I'll give you one example. Uh, it, it, from sitting in the Commons and just watching and observing and thinking, how do I become a parliamentarian? It was very obvious that people who speak without notes get more, uh, for some reason, I, I, would, I, I would ask myself the question, why is it when she speaks, everyone puts their phones down and listens? And when he speaks, everyone picks their phones up and does their messages and emails and then ignores them. Why? What is it that she said or did is different to what he said or did. Uh, and it, it's actually quite hard to answer that question. Uh, it works sometimes when you have celebrity politicians and people who are very powerful, obviously, but in general debates. And so I thought to myself, actually, this is very, very early on. I'm using notes to ask questions. Yeah. So why? Uh, why? Because it's so scary. If you get it wrong, you know, everything is recorded. It goes everywhere. You get yeah. hammered on everything. You get hate mail if you say the right wrong word in the wrong place and everything. So you, so everything points you to doing the safest thing. The safest thing is to, to think that you've got all questions for business tomorrow. I'm going to write the question out today and stand up and read the question. And I have no problem with other people that do it. I understand completely why they would do it and actually fine. For me, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't the kind of. It wasn't who I wanted to be. Um, and it's no. It's no reflection on other people who do different things. It wasn't who I wanted to be. And I thought it's not going to happen by accident. I'm not suddenly going to just suddenly just start not using scripts. So I made myself the pledge on the Sunday that the next week I would speak in every single oral questions, Monday to Thursday. And I did it. On the, and I set myself the, the plan. On Monday, I'd ask a question using a script. On Tuesday, I'd have a script in my hand, but I wouldn't use it. On Wednesday, I'd have the script in my pocket and I'd use both hands to gesture and I wouldn't uh, use it. Uh, but I knew that if, I, if it went clean out of my head, I would just sort of pause for a second, just get it out, and then just carry on. Great. Uh, and on Thursday, I went in, looked at the order paper, uh, bobbed in, in question number three or four, did the question straight there and then, and I've never used a script for questions or interventions since. So, you, you know, you just, as I say, that's, that's a very... So for me, revealing that is interesting because it's in the political context and it's in the House of Commons context. That's not interesting or revealing in any other walk of life what i've just described is what most people do in their jobs every week to get better they'll set themselves targets they'll try and improve themselves they'll try and do different stuff the only difference is that in politics nobody's there guiding you and nobody really sort of shows the way but you so, know what, what's really uh, interesting about that is I, I don't know how often politicians actually talk about their personal development as in being good at the job they talk about policies and ideas and values but in terms of becoming a better politician and being good in the House of Commons, these aren't things we ever talk about. The performance, if you like, of, of being a politician. That's such a good tip to effectively wean yourself off on a crash course within a week The need to rely you on notes. You can only do it. You can only... It'll never happen by accident. I mean, you will never wake up one day and be a good orator. And I am not a good orator. There's very few good orators. Uh, you'll never wake up one morning and know all the facts you need to do to take part in a debate uh, and be able to sort of spontaneously interject. You know, none of these things happen by accident. And the really good politicians are ones that make it look effortless. And I was once on, I was once on a committee and somebody who was a, a very, very well-known person was appearing before the committee. And when you're on the committee, you're not allowed to 
brief anybody as to what happens. Obviously, a witness, you don't have to coach a witness or anything. But that person called me, didn't ask any questions about the committee itself and what questions would be asked, but asked me uh, areas about the department that was responsible and just, just asked, you know, about general reading and stuff like that. Um, rang me on a Sunday evening and I said, you're not ringing about this committee on Thursday, are you? And he said, yes. And I was like, I can't believe it. And I don't think anybody, if they knew this person, would think that that person would be thinking on a Sunday about a political appearance that not many people are going to notice five days later, six days later. So um, I, uh, uh, he, he rang me twice more uh, that week. Not, and again, not about the specific evidence he was giving, but about he wanted to know the whole thing, the whole thing, and wanted just to sort of talk about it. When he arrived, he gave this sort of flawless, can I just say a few words before we uh, proceed? Um, said a few words just about what's happening here, what's happening in general, bits of policy, blah, 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 blah. Uh, then the, the committee went round and was, was very direct in their questions. And he was just effortless in all of his response, gave very sort of like, set the scene, came in with some facts, you know, gave an argument, shut up. Uh, when he left, one of the Tories walked over to me and went, my God, the thing that really gets you is, it's just so easy for him, isn't it? <laughs> Brilliant. And if ever there was a lesson in, in not, not, not politics, if ever there was a lesson in uh, getting on in, in the workplace and making an name for yourself, that is it. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone. Uh, it's just some people are very good at uh, making it look easy. So yeah, so for me, for me, I'm I'm on this journey. I've, uh, and and when you're on the front bench, you've got to learn a whole new set of skills. Speaking at dispatch box is very different. Speaking on the back benches, and I I got learned to get quite comfortable speaking from the back benches. I I, I even started to take some pleasure from bits of it. Whereas I for the first three years, I don't think I said a word that I enjoyed. Uh, and but I do know that my speaking got better. Uh, again, I practiced and practiced. Um, you know, there were some speeches. There's one speech I made that was awful. Uh, <laughs> and I knew, I knew. Can we find it on I YouTube? Was myself. I was, yeah, oh God. No, not luckily not because half, the, you know, I, it was a speech actually in the middle of a debate that nobody was really watching anyway. But it, it was, I knew from the, from the moment I said the first sentence, I had got it wrong. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't speak and do the, 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 the uh, agility to rewrite it in my head while I was giving it. Anyway, I spluttered it out, got it all wrong. Went back to my office and normally you, you, your team are in there and they're sort of like, you know, you, go, you said that well, Peter, well done, like that. They, they're, they're normally very polite. They try and I walked in and Sam, who was working for me, he was just looking at the floor. He was too embarrassed to make eye contact oh, with me. <laughs> oh, I man. And went, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> he got the bottle of whiskey out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very rare. That's very rare, but you know. Yeah, so um, you know, so, so it doesn't happen by accident, and and I do take that side of it very seriously, and I'm enjoying the journey, uh, and I'm enjoying the space I've got to develop skills, and I hope it's it's really nice. I mean, it's really nice when you say those things because for me, it's recognition of of, of the work that I put in, uh, and that's what I take out of it. Um, but I uh, I live for the moment, and I've never in my entire career planned. I've never had a plan. I'm never going to start having a plan. Uh, if you give a hundred percent. In the moment you're in now and you're open-hearted in the way you do it and you're as kind to as many people as you can possibly be kind to uh, then i think lots of doors either stay open or they open up further down the line and that's just how i've always the door, played the it. door to number 10 perhaps <laughs> i'm just not thinking i really 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 uh, i've walked through that door before uh, at a 
and it was and there was a Labour Prime Minister behind it, uh, which was which really was enough for me then, and it would be enough for me now. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers. Well, there you go, Peter Carl. What a guy, and what an incredible life. Going back to school at 25. I mean, that's not something out of a sitcom. It sounds made up. Let alone that this guy then becomes a member of parliament and ends up in the shadow cabinet and who knows where next. Absolutely incredible. The strength of characters just go into that. There's such a positivity and optimism about Peter Kyle that is contagious. And I'm sure you will have felt it listening to this. Um, Just to remind you, the political party is returning to the stage where it belongs, where it began, where, you know, what the show is, was a night out. It's also a podcast, but it was always a live show. And that is at the Duchess Theatre in London's glittering West End from Monday, the 27th of September this year and every fortnight since. So buy your tickets and I'll see you there. Ta-ra. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.